Here we are, part two. Whitney Webb, your all-time favorite Epstein researcher on this channel for many of you. And perhaps you have seen her recent interview with Maria Farmer. Now, after the judge, the court, recently ruled against the victims and upheld the sweetheart deal, Maria Farmer started to speak out. And Whitney spoke to her at length, and I was blown away by the depth of what she said. Not just the involvement of the Rothschilds, Wexner's role, but also the evil shenanigans pulled by various journalists over the years, pretending to act in her interest, and then siding with people like Ghislaine Maxwell. It, it made me absolutely sick. So yeah. thanks for coming back on, Whitney. Absolutely. Um, out of, you know, you, you spoke to her for over an hour of part one. What are the main themes that surprised you? Well, I actually spoke to her for three and a half hours. So what I release is just the first half of the call. Um, I'll probably be releasing the other half over the next couple of weeks or so. Um, and the first part um, that I released, there's... Um, I mean, a lot of the main themes had to do with what she experienced at Wexner's, um, some of her um, experiences with mainstream um, media journalists. Um, but, but that was also in the second half of the call. I mean, really, a lot of the themes touched on in the first half that's been publicly released. She brought up again later in the second half and, and gave more detail about specific things, including, you know, what she said was um, having been shown uh, photo albums by Ghislaine Maxwell of, of Maxwell and the royal family. Um, you know, be, uh, basically growing up together uh, in their teen years and all of this. Um, she, you know, went into greater detail into that later, but sort of mentioned it, uh, you know, in the beginning of the call and some other things like that. So, um, yeah, themes in, in general, um, just the horror that this woman experienced, um, particularly when she was staying at um, Leslie Wexner's guest house, where she was essentially pushed to go by Epstein and Maxwell. Um, because ostensibly uh, Leslie Wexner's wife, Abigail Wexner, wanted an artist in residence, but that's not exactly um, what ended up happening. If you listen to the call or read any of my reports on this, uh, basically she was kept in that house. She had to call and get permission to go outside. Uh, they basically starved her. Uh, she said she lost a ton of weight, even though she was already really small. They had previously told her that when she would be there, she'd be able to go to this country club do all sorts of things, um, and she was obviously not able to do that. They had pinhole cameras in Wexner's guest house, just like all these other houses where Epstein did these horrible crimes uh, that had cameras. Leslie Wexner's whole guest house was apparently bugged with these as well, and we can assume that most other places where these people um, lived and, and worked were also similarly bugged with these, these devices. And at some point, you know... Um, uh, I was actually, I'll be releasing this at some point as well. Um, Maria sent me a picture of her driver's license that she had been asked by Epstein to um, to um, to have, to get, why she was at, um, at this guest house, because they would come about once a month and they wanted her to drive them around um, and, and all of that when, when they would come into town. And it has Leslie Wexner's address on it. Uh, so I've seen that. Um, so this whole claim that Wexner has no idea who who she is and or Abigail Wexner has no idea who she is. I mean, that's all just very absurd because she has their address on a driver's license. I mean, there's really no way to explain that away. But anyway, um, she was there for about three months. The last time Epstein and Maxwell came to visit, they sexually assaulted her. Um, she report tried to report it to the police the police it turns out uh basically work for wexner in new albany ohio where this mansion is they do security on their off hours at his gate and the the 911 operator basically told her like they're not coming to help you no one's going to come save you that was, and, that was startling they said that the sheriff was on wexner's gate yeah well, somebody working with the sheriff was on wexner's gate I mean, he, he's the richest, most powerful man in that entire state. Um, so I guess it makes sense. But it really shows you how untouchable these people are and how Maria, after she was able to get out of there, how brave she was for actually trying to go to the FBI. She was the first person to report Epstein and Maxwell and Wexner to the FBI, specifically on charges related to the exploitation and trafficking of children and child pornography. And the FBI did nothing. What she talks about... Um, 
at length in the first part of the call that I, I've now released, but also in the second half and the, and the stuff these people um, did, all these people that are you would think would want to help someone like this, whether it's mainstream media journalists, whether it's the FBI or even the police department, I mean, Ed, you know, uh, constantly either closed doors in her face or exploited her. And she ended up uh, calling, you know, some mainstream media journalists like Vicki Ward, who have gotten a lot of accolades for their Epstein reporting, called her an abuser. And what what happened there, um, we can go into later, um, is just really devastating. I asked Vicki Ward on Twitter if she had an explanation for it. She still hasn't gotten gotten back to me. So um, we'll see if she actually does. I kind of doubt it, but um, just really devastating. And it, and it wasn't just Vicki Ward either. Um, James Patterson, who wrote this book on Epstein called Filthy Rich, that um, some people may be familiar with, that's the basis for this new Netflix documentary coming out on Epstein. Apparently, he harassed her so much trying to get her to be included in his book that she actually had to move towns, um, which is just very messed up. So, um, and that guy is, is about to make millions off of this Netflix documentary, and um, it's just it just tells you... Um, the motivation behind a lot of these big name Epstein reporters, you know, it's about money for them. It's not about the victims because they're treating these people um, like crap, honestly. And, you know, I can understand um, why Maria now just is willing to talk to someone like me even just to get the info out because, a con uh, you know, it, through this whole journey of hers, I mean, so many of the people that were supposed to do that or supposed to be supportive were not. Um, so I really think it's really, you know, that's why I released this call the first half um, publicly, the second half I'll be releasing later so that people, this information can come directly from Maria uh, to the people and not have to pass through people that may be filtering it out, you know, so her story can get out and be as widely disseminated and, and known as possible. And, you know, some of those leads can be followed by other Epstein researchers who are, you know, just interested people. I mean, uh, we really need, you know, all hands on deck to try and get this, uh, not keep this case alive um, and, and try and, you know, create some impetus so that this horrible ruling that people like Maxwell and Wexner and all of the other co-conspirators just get off and walk free for good. I mean, that is just a huge slap in the face. And the whole message of that is, okay, so if you get in bed with intelligence agencies or the right billionaire, you can literally do whatever you want. You can kill people, you can rape children on a massive scale and traffic them and kidnap them from all over the world. I mean, it's just, it's just mind boggling. And that's the message it sends. It tells those types of criminals, get in bed with these guys and you will never go to jail. Um, it's just, uh, just very uh, distressing. But again, I just wanna, um, point out how, how brave Maria is, not only in having talked about this in 1996, but uh, to have stayed so strong over this period of time and, and her willingness to you know speak up now after all these efforts to silence her um, and to continue to try and get her story out. So I really hope that people, you know, um, you know, take advantage of what she's she's done and get this information out there so these people can be seen for, you know, what they the criminals they are. Going over some of your points more slowly then, you said that the FBI didn't help her. She said that she told them everything and they not only didn't help her, but they kind of became her enemies. They were part of the cover-up. Could you expand on that? Why would the FBI want to you know, behave like that? Well, as to why the FBI would behave like that, you have to look at the history of the FBI. Um, I point out in my series that I would argue that a lot of these sexual blackmail operations, including Epstein, they go back to this criminal organization in the U.S. called the National Crime Syndicate. Um, and that crime syndicate got blackmailed very early on on J. Edgar Hoover and also got in bed with U.S. intelligence, whether it was the OSS and later the CIA. And if you actually look at Hoover's career as the longest and first FBI director, he never went over organized crime and refused to recognize that it existed for a very, very long time. And that was because he was in bed with a lot of these people. Um, one of the um, earlier sexual blackmail operations I point out in my series involved a guy named Louis Rosenstiel and a guy named Roy Cohn, who later went on to be Donald Trump's mentor. And Hoover was actually very intimately involved in that sexual blackmail ring. So the fact that the first FBI director was, was so enmeshed 
not just with this criminal underworld, but also with that specific type of activity, it kind of shows you what's going on there. And it's also worth pointing out that at the time Maria reported this to the FBI in 1996, the director of the FBI was Louis Free, who had basically been given his judgeship that preceded him being appointed FBI director by Roy Cohn, who I just mentioned, right? Um, and then Louis Free, of course, was later hired by Alan Dershowitz to go and harass Epstein victims to try and keep them from speaking out. Um, so, it, you know, if he's in charge of the FBI during that period of time, and that's what he ends up doing later, you know, trying to silence and harass these victims, it makes sense why they behave that way. Um, and, it, and it basically continued, um, though, even after Free left and, you know, Robert Mueller took over and, and subsequent directors, I mean, the cover-up has, you know, has been the same. And, you know, whether it's uh, a case like this or some event like the 2001 anthrax attacks where the FBI was also accused of a, being involved in a huge cover-up, even by its own lead investigator on the case, um, you know, it's just consistently seems to be an agency that runs interference or cover for the very highest levels of power, whether that's the highest levels of power in government or in society in terms of oligarchs and, and oligarchy. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Leslie Wexner is like one of the richest men in the United States. So, um, it, you know, if you look at patterns of behavior, they very often seem to protect those types of individuals. Which well, is very unfortunate, obviously, but that's the reality of the situation. Well, I'm glad you brought Roy Cohn up because one of your viewers has sent me a couple of questions and he's asked me to ask you, what was the relationship between Robert Maxwell, Roy Cohn and Epstein? Um, as far as Roy Cohn and Robert Maxwell, I'm not aware if, if there's any uh, direct relationship there. Um, and uh, Epstein and Roy Cohn, okay, so um, it's a little complicated to unpack because I basically have to um, go back to the beginning of my series, how Roy Cohn was involved, but basically that sexual blackmail operation I was, I was talking about involving um, Lewin, Lewin, uh, Rosenstiel um, and Cohn and, and Hoover and all of that ended up having several branches that branched out. Uh, Roy Cohn had a lot of deep standing ties to the Israel lobby and a lot of this um, community, I guess you could say, in Manhattan that involved a lot of the same figures that Epstein and Trump were around. It was also reported that um, Epstein and Trump in the 1980s, during this period of time when Roy Cohn and Trump were talking by Trump's, uh, by no, um, it was Roy Cohn's um, secretary, Roy Cohn and Trump would talk like 17 times a day during that period of time. Um, Epstein and Trump were, uh, and uh, Tom Barrick, who's now of Colony Capital, were said to be the three musketeers of New York nightlife. They were partying constantly, doing a lot of these things together. Um, Roy Cohn was running his sexual blackmail operation, this pedophilia operation that he admitted to a New York uh, police uh, detective, basically. Um, he was running this out of the Plaza Hotel soon after Roy Cohn died. It was taken over by Donald Trump, and there were a lot of um, sketchy activities that happened there and this whole um, move of both Epstein and Trump into the modeling agencies and all of this stuff, along with John Luke Brunel and others, started to happen during this time. Um, a lot more information on this uh, will be in my in my book, of course, but a lot of, you know, um, in terms of like direct ties, it has to do um, more with these indirect ties uh, with society and all of that. But other things that came off of this original sexual blackmail um, operation that I talk about with the National Crime Syndicate and intelligence and all of that. I mean, you have things like the Franklin scandal. You have things like Craig Spence in Washington, D.C. Craig Spence uh, in, in the, the Operation Roy Cohn was running. They were interconnected. I've talked about this in my series. So um, the fact that you had Epstein associating in, in this way with Roy Cohn's protege and all of that, you also had Roy Cohn very intimately involved in Israel lobby organizations that also had ties to Maxwell. And a lot of these other uh, people that were friends with um, Roy Cohn and Epstein, you know, like Mort Zuckerman and all of this ended up trying to go into business with Maxwell and things like that and, and publishing and all of that. Um, you know, it's all a very insidious, interconnected, interconnected group that seems to produce a very large amount of sexual blackmail operations um, when, when you look at it. So, um, you know, I, I'm trying to map out a network in my series. Um, so it's a, it's a little hard to sort of be like explicitly this person was connected to this person this way when these people uh, deal in secrecy and we know for a fact have lied so much about um, how when they actually met each other 
You know, um, a good example of that being, you know, Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Gates claim that they, you know, Gates says they didn't meet until 2011, but in reality, it, it was sometime in the 1990s, um, you know, and uh, there's a, even Maxwell and um, Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein, the, the official story says they met in the early 90s. Um, I have numerous sources, including Maria Farmer, uh, have told me that they actually met in the 1980s. Um, you know, it's all, th these people are professional liars, basically. Um, and if you if you catch them in something they don't admit to it, so you basically have to go seep through a mountain of facts and try and, and, and build, uh, you know, a case based on, on those facts as to why, as to how these people are interconnected and why there's so many sexual blackmail operations connected to them. I mean, another one that's connected to this whole National Crime Syndicate intelligence, uh, you know, nexus is the Nexium cult because that's the Bronfman family. The Bronfmans are one of the, you know, uh, one of the families that was has been involved with the National Crime Syndicate since its founding in the 20s and has continued its relationship with um, with organized crime, you know, throughout uh, ever ever since really, and are also, you know, co-founded this mega group with Leslie Wexner, this group of billionaires that I would argue was Jeffrey Epstein's, you know, real employer since they have a lot of pull on the intelligence apparatus uh, apparatus of both the U.S. and Israel and their respective governments as well, right? So it's all... Um, <laughs> it, it's really a, a very tangled web when you look at it. Yeah, I was blown away by researching the Franklin scandal, how one of the investigators died and the victims were incarcerated right. and got huge sentences. It was really sad that the only people who ended up in prison were the victims. It's absolutely crazy. So this guy has also asked if you're aware of Cohn's visits in the late 60s and in the 70s to Belfast and London. London, of course, being no. a finance capital, but there was um, a place in Belfast where this guy is claiming that Cohn abused underage boys. See what you no, I had, I had not heard of that accusation, but given what I laid out, that he was involved, you know, admittedly involved in, in pedophilia and, and sexual blackmail, because there's a lot of evidence of this, and it's really shocking mainstream media hasn't reported on this because he was a mentor um, to Trump, basically. But you have, you know, the official proceedings of the, the New York Committee on Crime, on organized crime from the 1970s. You have divorce proceedings of Louis, Louis Rosenstiel's fourth wife. You have Cohn admitting to a New York Police Department detective that he was involved in this. Um, so the fact that he would have done this um, in other countries, um, frankly, it's not surprising. But I, you know, this is the I, I, I will definitely need to look into that. It wouldn't. Um, it definitely sounds like it's credible based on we know about Cohn's history and how, uh, like so much else, there's been a deliberate cover-up of what's going on there. So looking at some of the myths that Maria Farmer has busted about when people first established relationships, I interviewed Ari ben Menashe recently, and he talked about it was in the 1980s mm -hmm. where, you know, Ghislaine and Epstein and Robert Maxwell, all this was being formed. What is the official version the mainstream media version of when Prince Andrew got in the mix. And what is your version of events now that you've spoke to so many people and done so much research? All right, so the, the official mainstream media account, I believe it says that um, Prince Andrew and Ghislaine started to become more involved in like the late, very late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and that's why you have a lot of um, articles in the UK media, that a lot of which have been scrubbed since um, that, you know, before Epstein was ever arrested, even the first time you have um, uh, these articles talking about who are Prince Andrew's, you know, new friends. And they're talking about Ghislaine Maxwell and they're talking about Jeffrey Epstein and things they've heard about them. And, and even in some of those early reports, including one from 2001, they actually talk about um, that they, they talked to sources who said that they both, um, that Maxwell and Epstein were connected to Israeli intelligence and the CIA and all this stuff. I mean, it makes sense why those have been scrubbed from the internet since. You can still find them on the right newspaper archive website, though. Um, but essentially, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like Bill Clinton. They were claiming that, you know, this didn't take place until the early-ish 2000s, the very late 90s. So, I mean, the, 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 the official accounts, at least in some of these scrubbed reports, says that the relationship with Prince Andrew, between Ghislaine and Prince Andrew, was facilitated by Fergie, who had befriended Maxwell years prior, um, something like that. But of course, what Maria says is that she was shown all these photo albums of 
of Prince Andrew and, and Ghislaine Maxwell uh, together quite young um, in, you know, teenage years and all of this said that they, uh, Ghislaine described growing up with the royals and all of this stuff. Um, it's definitely well before the 1980s in that case. So you definitely have um, a much longer uh, past relationship. And I also understand from someone else I have spoken to that the Prince Andrew Epstein relationship did not begin in the late 90s, but the 1980s, much like um, what we've been told of, or, or what has been revealed about uh, his ties with Maxwell, because Ari Ben Menashe physically saw Epstein with Maxwell um, in the 1980s. And of course, Maria Farmer corroborated this. Um, saying that they had met uh, years and years ago in the 1980s and that the claim that Epstein and Ghislaine didn't meet until 1991 when she came to New York after her father's death, I mean, is patently false. She says that's really when the sexual blackmail operation began. A lot of people previously thought it was around 1995 or 1994, but she um, sort of got drug into this world beginning in 1995, and she said that they had been doing this for years at that point. It was clear to her. Um, one of the main recruiters for girls was a woman named Claire Hazel on that she had been uh, recruited by Epstein uh, at least, you know, three to four years before, you know, Maria Farmer ever showed up. And that would have been what, 92, 91. So definitely, um, I mean, these people, are, <laughs> the mainstream media account is not telling the truth about when all this stuff began and that that's because they don't want the truth to come out. They, just like the FBI, are running interference for this. They, they want to keep this under wraps. Um, because, you know, as I sort of pointed out, talking about, you know, um, Roy Cohn and all of this stuff, you start to pull on one of these threads, and then the whole thing starts to come apart and be revealed. Um, you have a sitting president that's, that's tied to a lot of this stuff, and, of course, previous presidents, including, you know, the Clintons, right? So the more you pull on, the, on, on these threads, the more you're going to, uh, end up revealing a lot of this stuff that these very powerful people, not just politically powerful, but there's also lots of other billionaires, hedge fund managers, you know, that have tried to um, basically um, make people forget that they had close associations with Epstein, like Leon Black, among other ones, you know, um, and uh, it makes sense why they would want this type of attention to go away. Also, a lot of um, publishers of big name um, report or sorry, uh, periodicals like in the U.S., like the New York Daily News uh, and the New York Post, like Rupert Murdoch, for example, is very involved in this in this world. Was very close to Roy Cohn, among other figures, right? Um, I mean, they have skin in the game in this not coming out, so it makes sense why mainstream media would not, because they're essentially beholden to a lot of these same interests. So you mentioned the Clintons. There was a point last year where. Clinton was in the news quite a bit because of all the flights on the Lolita Express. And then in this country, the Clintons were never really mentioned again. It was all Prince Andrew. Speaking to Maria and all your research you've done, what is the extent of the Clintons' involvement that you've found out? Um, well, from what I understand, and this includes information from Ari Ben Menashe that he um, repeated on your interview, that a lot of the reason for the sexual blackmail operation involved was aimed at politicians, specifically politicians associated with Clinton, which is interesting when you see that people like Bill Richardson, who was uh, Clinton's Secretary of Energy um, and later Governor of New Mexico, end up getting very involved in um, the Epstein scandal, right? But um, just like with what happened with Prince Andrew, there's been this effort to sort of say that for mainstream media that Epstein and Clinton did not get involved until Clinton had left office. Um, of course, now we know this to be uh, false. Actually, even mainstream me uh, media reported last year that um, Epstein was actually visiting the White House as early as, I believe, 1993, that he would meet with the deputy chief of staff um, and that he was very you know, involved in things um, much more involved in, in, you know, the Clinton administration than, than appear than, than we've been led to believe. Also, one of um, the Clinton family's longtime donors and backers, Lynn Forrester, now Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, um, had a very close relationship with Epstein in the early 90s, actually um, called upon him for some sort of help. We don't know what kind of help, but some sort of help when she was um, doing her for uh, she was um, divorcing from Andrew Stein, who actually has ties to the Rosensteel family. Like I said, it's all a very interconnected web there. But anyway, um, Lynn Forrester um, is apparently one of the people that helped connect them early on. Another man being uh, A. Paul Prosperi, who was a Palm Beach real estate lawyer with close ties to Epstein, visited him numerous times when he was in prison. 
um, is a close uh, cop friend from the from college of Bill Clinton, and apparently was involved in getting Epstein and, and Ghislaine Maxwell to attend. I believe it was 1993, um, may have been 1992, um, a very big fundraiser for Bill Clinton, where a lot of these people were there, and of course the president. We also know in 1995 that um, there was a letter sent from Lynn Forrester to Bill Clinton that basically said, um, hey, it was nice seeing you the other day at this person's house, and I didn't get to talk to you about um, everything I wanted, but I did get to talk to you about um, currency stabilization and Jeffrey Epstein, right? And this is in 1995. So um, for him to say that, you know, those ties did not start after 2000 is, is um obviously inaccurate <laughs> if we have documentation that he was making White House visits and meeting with important people at the White House and then you have someone like a top donor like Lynn Forrester um, openly talking about Epstein in a letter to Clinton but what Maria says is that while she was there um, basically uh, you know doing interior decorating and, and, and stuff like that for, for Maxwell and Epstein that she was um, on three occasions uh, she was told by Ghislaine, the president's coming, and everyone had to make all these preparations um, and basically clear out. Everyone had to clear out. She was the last to leave of the employees that had to, the only employee apparently allowed to stay with this guy was this guy named Chef Andy, the personal chef. Um, we'll get to him later, though, because there's uh, more to say about him. But um, she said that, you know, there would be girls that would be, that would stay behind, right? And uh, the chef would stay behind, but everyone else had to clear out because apparently, you know, no one could be there, but it, there was lots of preparations uh, to, to decorate and all of this stuff in which she was involved in. Ghislaine was specifically saying that the president was coming. Um, and this is, you know, she was there for about two years, but remember part of that was at Wexner's guest house. So in about, you know, a, a year to a year and a half, the, you know, the president was going to visit FC in New York three times. Right. So, I mean, it makes sense why there's been this cover up because, um, well, I think it kind of speaks for itself. I mean, imagine that coming out in mainstream media. <laughs> Has Maria been able to track the chef down and is the chef going to be asked to come to court to testify? Well, um, he has been found now when we uh, spoke. Uh, he, she said that she was getting her lawyers tr to try and subpoena him, but it turns out at the beginning of this month that he died suddenly, no. according to reports. Yeah, according to reports from his uh, home where he's uh, was living in in Michigan. Um, I, I posted on this on Twitter for anyone want, that wants to see the articles. Um, yeah, it says that he died suddenly. Um, and peacefully in his sleep, and this is according to the owner of the restaurant, not the guy's own family. Um, it didn't say anything about an autopsy. It didn't say anything about Epstein either, obviously. But, um, you know, people have asked, how do you know this is the guy? Well, actually, I know it's the guy because Maria Farmer sent me that article about him dying, his obituary, in an email and said, this is the guy. So, I mean... Uh, it's just uh, disconcerting. It seems like there's uh, an effort to tie up loose ends here um, and keep the story from coming out now that they have this ruling. And I think that's why it's so important to have um, this information circulated because, you know, someone like Maria, um, who sees that type of um, event take place with the chef, um, is obviously going to be concerned. The, the, the thing you can do to help her and protect people like this is to get this information out and raise its public visibility because obviously if something were to happen to someone who's more publicly visible people will notice as, as opposed to you know things passing under the radar um, and then you know some they die suddenly in their sleep and no one notices right so um, apparently there was an interest in um, or rather a sight of relief depends on how conspiratorial you are in viewing the sudden death of this of the chef um, it just seems very convenient for, you know, the people, the very powerful people that he would have had information on. Because what she she described this man to me as the holy grail of information on the Epstein case, that this man saw everything for at least a period of 10 years. Um, so he's gone now. Hashtag Clinton body count on that one. So one of the most the saddest parts, actually, of the... Maria Farmer, what she said was she asked a Filipina maid, you know, about her, how she'd come to be there. 
and the maid basically said, you know, we were taken, we were trafficked. Now and stolen, was stolen, yeah. stolen, yeah. How many victims have come forward? How many victims do you calculate exist out there? And also, when I heard that about the Filipino maid, I've spoken to Charlie Robinson several times on this subject, and he has analyzed the Clintons and the operations in Haiti, and he mm-hmm. believes that that people were trafficked probably from Haiti and other poorer areas of the world to these islands, like the islands that Epstein had. Um, I know I've asked you three questions at at once there. Um, (laughs) So the the first one, the first one then was, how many victims at this stage have come forward and how many do you believe are out there? Okay, so uh, Maria says that only 30 have come forward, 30. But she says when she was there, right, this is like um, before she went to Wexner. So again, around, um, I'd have to clarify exactly how many months, but it was around a year to a year and a half in that case, um, that she saw between five to 10 girls a day pass through Epstein's office, different girls. So um, she thinks that the, the actual number of victims is way up there in the thousands Um, If you calculate it out five to 10 a day, um, you know, it's definitely around like (laughs) um, a thousand a year or so close to that. So, yeah, probably like um, if you consider that this went on the real actual starting date, 91 to 95, and it went on pretty much till Epstein's arrest in 2006, I mean, well over 10,000 victims. 30 have come forward, 30. Um, when you consider the, the the tactics to silence these people, like hiring a former FBI director like Louis Free or concern about these powerful people, um, I don't know. Um, I mean, it makes sense why people wouldn't want to come forward in that climate, especially seeing what happened to Maria, right? But um, on the other hand, now that Epstein is, is you know, um, dead, suicided, whatever, um, out of the picture, you know, there's a lot of people um, that would assume that, well, you can sue his estate and get money, so why would more people not come out of the woodwork in that case and at least try and join this lawsuit to get some money out of the estate, and they haven't. Um, that, that leads Maria to believe that there may have been um, some people who were killed, um, which is honestly probably one of the hardest things about um, this call to talk about for me. Um, but when you listen to Maria's story about how she was almost killed at Wexner's house and a guest house and, and, you know, and she says, I was an adult at the time. What would have happened if I had been one of these preteen girls, these young girls, it really makes you wonder, um, what these people are capable of and what they may have done and why more victims haven't come forward. Um, it's just all very, um, sick and, and evil and, and horrible to think about. Um, but um, moving on to the next part of the question before I just like um, continue to talk about how disgusting and, and awful all of this is. Um, the, the Filipino maid aspect, we know that they were trafficking, um, trying to bring girls from Southeast Asia and also South America. Um, but we don't know a lot of what happened to those girls, right? For example, Virginia Roberts, she ended up leaving um, this whole network when she was sent to Thailand to recruit, and then she ended up escaping there in Thailand, right? So we know that they were sending people there to look for girls. Um, But the fact that these maids told Maria Farmer that they had been stolen, um, that really really overtly suggests some sort of kidnapping took place. because it wasn't just like, hey, come to America and work for us um, type of deal where they may have been uh, told to go work somewhere. And then, you know, what they were told they would be doing was different from what actually happened. Stolen instead suggests that they they were taken, Um, which is is uh, uh, again, just one of the harder parts of this recording to really take in. Um, and listen to because she said that at pretty much all of these residences, not just of Epstein, but a lot of his close associates had, you know, Filipino maids. And she was like, were they all stolen? I mean, honestly, who really knows? Um, 
but it's definitely one aspect of the case the not the not just the human trafficking for you know the sex trafficking but also labor trafficking it appears these people were were trafficking on just a, a massive massive scale not just for um, for sexual blackmail and, and pedophilia purposes, you know, they were involved in, in a lot more. I mean, the scandal is a lot bigger than what we've even been led to believe um, on many fronts. So um, I think that's another important point for people to to take into consideration because Maria was only there for a relatively short period of time. Um, I'm sure other victims have similar things to say. Um, but of course, if they're, they've been dealing with the same FBI and the same mainstream media that Maria has, uh, it would make sense that more of that hasn't come out. Um, but it's all just very, um, it's very important. People understand that, you know, because of the secrecy and the cover-ups, we, um, there is still so much about what happened, um, that we do not know. And it is essential to find out, um, more about what happened because by all appearances, Epstein was a project manager. The people responsible, the bosses, if you will, of this op are, are going to get off free um, as things stand now. And that makes it highly likely that this will happen again, or it's equally possible that this continues to happen right now. Um, and that Epstein, you know, in this project manager type of position could have been replaced by someone. And this type of operation could continue because the supposed authorities meant to protect uh, these girls are not doing that. And the authorities that are supposed to inform the public, the mainstream media about it, are not doing it either. So this is why um, it's really important for people to get this information out there. Maria Farmer is someone who has been, uh, whose account has been corroborated um, by mainstream media and deemed credible by them. So um, there's a reason they haven't reported on some of her other um, statements. So you mentioned that Maria Farmer was in a situation whereby she almost got killed. I'm familiar with that story, but many people watching this are not familiar. Are you okay to retell that, please? Um, yeah, but I would refer people um, to the phone call to listen because it's been a couple weeks since I did the phone call. Um, so I may, uh, I'm going to do my best to retell it, but it's best that you listen to Maria. Um, uh, but from what I understand, after the sexual assault with Epstein, um, and she tried to inform people about it, called a lot of different, there was a landline in this guest house. She basically, you know, called her family, called friends, pretty much everyone she knew. She was trying to say, uh, you know, that she's being, been trapped here. She, you know, she was sexually assaulted. Get me out. Um, and apparently Randy Bowie who is this guy that introduced himself to her as Leslie Wexner's right-hand man and a former special forces um, military guy, um, basically came over with this look in his eyes that she said she had never seen anyone ever look at her that way. And he told her, you are never leaving this estate. And that she remembered, she thought she was going to die, that he'd been sent there to kill her. Um, and um, <sighs> she... Um, basically went back, uh, barricaded the door or something like that and, and kept calling more people, really raising a stink because she knew they were watching her because of these cameras. So she figured um, the bigger of a stink you raised, you know, um, and the more people you let know uh, that, you know, you're at Leslie Wexner's house before you like disappear or whatever, you know, the harder it is for them to wash their hands of the story. I mean, it's definitely quick thinking. But she also said that she remembered having seen on TV, you know, if someone comes to kill you, don't ever, this is so, I, I just am so distraught I even had to talk about this. Um, you know, she heard on the TV, um, don't let them take them to a second location if you think they're going to kill you because they'll kill you at the second location. So apparently this guy, Randy Bowie, was trying to take her somewhere. And so she um, was holding on to like the pillar at one of these guest houses and that went on for like, I think like 12 hours until um, she would, they finally were like, just go because she'd raised such a stink and held on for so long. And her, her, her father um, had showed up to the property. Um, this is a huge estate by the way. So it's not like he, the father would get to the gate and be able to see what was going on. Right. I mean, it was just like miles of walking um, apparently, but uh, apparently at some point she, they were like, just go. And she walked in and then got out. And that's when she called the FBI but it's a very, um, it literally sounds like living in a horror movie. Um, 
just very distressing. Uh, uh, yeah. So I would, I would encourage people that want to know, um, about what happened to just listen to Maria because me retelling it, I'm, I'm not doing it justice. Um, I mean, these people are just so criminal. Um, with a loss for words, you know. The link to that call is in the description box below this video. If you're watching this, you want to click over and, and check that out. And Randy, the guy who was threatening her, what did he go on to become? Well, he's now a bodyguard for Hollywood celebrities. Um, and apparently when um, the story broke about, you know, Epstein being uh, rearrested last year, um, Jada Pinkett Smith, a Will Smith's wife had called Maria Farmer, apparently wanting to know um, about the case. And um, Maria Farmer mentioned Randy Bowie, and basically the call ended up ending there. And she was like, oh, that's weird. And then she got a letter, a cease and desist letter from Randy Bowie through Wexner's lawyers, telling her not to talk about him anymore. So apparently um, she says that that's how she learned that this guy was working as a bodyguard for the Smith family. So, listening to the call, Maria described a kind of caste system whereby a lot of vulgar language was used to describe black people, whereby mm -hmm. white trafficked girls were considered chattel, and there was like this supremacist mindset running through these psychopaths. Could you expand on that a bit, please? Yeah, um, she said that she was that they frequently expressed supremacist language. They were very racist um, and basically believed that they were superior, and that they told her that because of you know who she was, um, that she was just a servant. She was nothing essentially, um, and that you know other people that were not of their stock or whatever were also beneath them. I mean. If you look at mainstream media reporting on some of like Epstein's interest in science, right, we know that he was into eugenics and that he thought he was going to improve the human race by seeding the human race with his DNA by taking a lot of these traffic girls and forcing them to have his children at the New Mexico ranch, um, the Zorro ranch, right? So apparently Epstein thought that he uh, was so genetically great that he needed to seed the human race with his DNA, right? But this is actually something if you look in the history of eugenics as a movement, uh, if you look at the history of that, you will see right away that it was really has, uh, over the past, uh, over 100 years ago, um, it was basically led by U.S. billionaires, the eugenics movement, J.D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, their charitable foundations were very um, involved in funding eugenicist scientists that promoted racial superiority and inferiority and promoted birth control measures for people they deemed inferior. Uh, this actually even led to laws in various U.S. states about eugenics being passed and even a Supreme Court ruling ruling in favor of eugenic type policies. The Rockefeller Foundation even ended up creating eugenics institutions in Nazi Germany. And, you know, of course, with everything that happened in World War II, that obviously went out of style. But a lot of these same sort of um, ideas among the ruling class, as it were, um, persist. They're just not as overt as it was maybe 100 years ago because of, um, you know, the need to um, manage public perception of their views. Um, but, you know, a lot of things these eugenicist billionaires in the past, like the Rockefellers did, was they also had a lot of public relations campaigns about framing them as philanthropists and using philanthropy and all of that to sort of launder their reputations or uh, show that they're actually up to something different. And let's remember, too, that before Epstein was arrested the first time, uh, Bill Clinton was asked about him and said, oh, he's a great philanthropist, mm. right? So even Jeffrey Epstein was, you know, framed as this philanthropist. Leslie Wexner has frequently been flamed as a great philanthropist um, and all of these things, right? So um, a lot of these same patterns that we've seen, you know, over the past hundred years or so, with a lot of these billionaires and in, in this, you know, ruling class, this, the structure in, in general, um, you know, is, is essentially persisting um, in this case. And it's all very... Um, you know, it really shows what, what they think of regular people, um, that they think that we're inferior uh, and that they feel like they can do this to our children because we're not, 
one of them essentially and they they view these uh superior inferior that the, the the demarcation of these things as being at the level of genetics so i think that's important for people to understand and explains too why epstein was so interested in in genetics and funding geneticists and all of these other um you know particular sciences that are involved in gene editing and other things you know it shows a a very overt interest in that um and on epstein's part so it would make sense that we'd see a lot of this sort of bubble up in his, and how he would talk about himself and others and also Ghislaine Maxwell would talk about herself and others and, and not just these guys but some of the other you know powerful people that she named she says they also had this very same supremacist attitude. So Maria's family got hit particularly hard with this because her sister was a victim as well. Right. How were the sisters originally targeted? What happened to her sister and how is her sister doing now? Um, so I don't remember exactly how Mar uh, Maria's sister Annie got involved with all of this. Um, I'd have to go back and, and look at my notes um, because, like I said, it was a three-and-a-half-hour call, and I wasn't intending to ever air it as an interview. Um, it was really for my book, and I was planning to do a follow-up call and basically just gave Maria, you know, the mic and was like, just tell me whatever you want. And I figured I'd do follow up calls later. So we didn't really talk a lot about her sister, Annie. But if you read the mainstream media accounts, it explains a lot more about uh, Annie Farmer and, and Maria Farmer, right? But Maria said that she had basically been um, forced to work for Epstein in this interior decorator capacity that I, I mentioned earlier, because she was uh, studying at the New York Academy of Art and that the dean of that school, a woman named Eileen Guggenheim, um, basically pushed her to uh, very aggressively uh, pushed her to at first sell her art to Epstein when she did not want to um, and basically uh, continued to push until she basically became this employee of Epstein and Maxwell doing interior decorating and paintings of all of this. Um, and uh, that's essentially where, where that came from and, you know, continued for this uh, period of roughly two years. Um, at some point, um, they, I, I, I don't know exactly, like I said, um, how her sister got in the mix, but they had apparently been going through Maria's stuff, she realized later, and had seen pictures of her sisters. She, she has another sister as well, um, but had seen pictures of her sister, and she realized, you know, in hindsight, that that's how they had become interested in other members of her family, was seeing these pictures of, you know, her 12-year-old, 15-year-old sister, um, and all of the stuff, and that they actually ended up stealing photographs of them from her private belongings and uh, Ghislaine Maxwell at one point broke into Maria's apartment and took a painting she liked from her portfolio and then had it up the next day in her apartment um just all um very disturbing but that's a um, apparently it was this New York Academy of Art that got them involved and then once she was in there and her sister was in there, they would not let them leave. I mean, there were several times Maria said where she tried to leave and said she wanted to quit. And they were like, no, 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 no. Or if you don't want to work here, you can go work with these people. And they would name names, you know, like Harvey Weinstein, right? <laughs> um, so like one example, you know, they were uh, asking about her sister, what, where did her sister um, what they wanted her sister to do, and she would, and they, she would say like, no, my sister wants to go to an Ivy League school and do this, and they were like, no, 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 she can go to Hollywood and and work with our friend Harvey Weinstein, right? So you know, this is definitely a very interconnected um, group um, that they have several different ways of getting girls, whether it's this New York Academy of Art. Apparently, there's this this Weinstein connection with Hollywood, and I'm sure there's a lot more than that, right? So. Um, and then you have, you know, them recruiting out of Mar-a-Lago in the case of Virginia Roberts and all of this stuff, um, at least for a period of time. Um, it, it appears that they had several different um, um, areas in, in different areas of the country that were used to sort of trying to, to try and get these girls sucked in. And apparently Eileen Guggenheim of the New York Academy of Art was also um, involved in trying to marry off Maria to people, trying to set her up with people, and that she had done that with other students. Um, and uh, it just all seems very, um, I mean, really similar behavior if you listen to the call on the part of Eileen Guggenheim um, and, and some of what was going on with Epstein and, and Maxwell. It's just very uh, disgusting, frankly. Um, Guggenheim apparently also became press secretary for Prince Charles and that that was facilitated by Ghislaine Maxwell um, <laughs> uh, as a favor or something like that. Just 
It's and this, and this, and this Guggenheim wasn't even a real Guggenheim, and the royals were going in and out of this place every time they were on this that side of the ocean. Is that what she said? Yeah, yeah, that she had seen Prince Andrew and, and um, most members of the royal family at this Academy of Art that they would visit there, and that um, she knows that Eileen Guggenheim attended at least one uh, you know royal family reception at, at some point um, because she saw the invitation. Because before working for Epstein and all of that, she was working uh, basically as a full-time nanny for Eileen Guggenheim and uh, taking care of her young daughter and had seen you know some of this stuff there, yeah. One of the most shocking parts was when Maria, she had a boyfriend, I think she was in Arizona, and Guggenheim brokers this deal whereby a call comes from the UK from a famous artist saying, you're going to fly out here and basically be my concubine? Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you remember the artist's name? Uh, she said she couldn't remember his name, but that he was really famous and she didn't remember who he was. Um, was she didn't know who he was until she looked him up. Was it Twomby, was it? Uh, I don't know. I think you'd have to ask her. I mean, if she heard the name, it might jog her memory. I, I honestly don't know. But I'm not super familiar with the world of, like, you know, uh, er, er, like, you know, high-ranking British artists. Sorry, I'm not a I, – I research stuff like <laughs> the Epstein scandal, so I don't, I'm not overly familiar. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, yeah, I'd, I'd love to speak to her if you could arrange it at some point. That would be great. Um, how is your book coming along? So many people are asking about your, the progress on your book and the date for it. And Well, I'll be turning in the full draft of the book at the end of June. It should be out in early fall. Um, been pretty busy with that and also other stuff because, I'm, as I'm sure everyone knows, the news cycle has been very dominated by a particular event that is taking, you know, and a lot of crazy things going on there. So I've had some, uh, you know, uh, other series that I started that I have to tie up and then I'll be going to work on the book full time. But, you know, things are progressing pretty well. And at the end of, like I said, at the end of June, the whole draft should be done and then it should take just a couple more months to get it out into book form. Mm -hmm. So have you already decided on your chapters? Um, it depends. I mean, a, a lot of times, well, I've never really written a book before. But um, it, I think it depends on how many, um, sometimes you think you have written the whole first part of the story and then you find um, something that you want to go back and add, right, as you, as you research later on. So um, I, I don't know how married to my, my current, you know, chapter outline I, I have, that I have right now, um, it may still change, but we'll see. I mean, it, things are going pretty well, um, I would say, so um, I'm glad that people are asking about it and, and are, you know, excited to read it when, once it's done. That, you know, is very encouraging. <laughs> yeah, you're just constantly revising and then you put it out and then something else happens and you think, oh, it's <laughs> the right part yeah. too now. So have you got a chapter on the royal family in there? Um, well, I was thinking about framing it. Um, well, so my book in general is, is an extension of my series. So it's mostly on, um, it's not just on Epstein. It's also about um, what I sort of mentioned earlier, sort of the genesis of these types of sexual blackmail operations in the, in the United States and their ties to intelligence in both the U.S. and Israel. So I'm basically going all the way back to the 1920s, and then I go all the way up, um, you know, through Epstein and his connections to all, to all of this. Um, and in terms of Epstein, um, I'm pretty much just going up up until his first arrest and maybe a little bit about, um, I haven't gotten that far yet in the book. I'm mostly, I'm pretty much at like the 1960s, 1970s uh, part of this now um, as I'm writing. So um, I, I'm, I'm considering it, but I, I think I, 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 I'm not entirely sure if I'm going to have an entire chapter just on the Royals. Um, I, uh, it, it depends because the focus of the book, like I said, isn't on Epstein specifically. It's on sexual blackmail operations and intelligence, like a, a heavy focus on the intelligence aspect. I mean, obviously the royal family has to be mentioned in there, um, but in terms of their own chapter, I haven't decided that yet. Have you read any of the other books out there about Epstein that have been published um, last year or so? No, I have not. The one of the one author of um, one of the books, a guy named Dylan Howard, he sent me a message on Facebook saying he loved my work. So um, maybe it influenced him a little bit. Apparently, he talked about um, you know the the Israeli intelligence ties um, in his book, from what I understand. But I like I said, I haven't read it. Though after he published his book. 
Um, Stephen Hoffenberg, a former business partner of, of Epstein's from the, um, the late 90s into the, or sorry, the late 80s into the early 90s, uh, said, yeah, Epstein told me all about the intelligence stuff. And yeah, he, you know, had ties to Israeli intelligence and these other intelligence agencies. So uh, it, it's nice that that helped um, further corroborate what a lot of people, including myself, have reported on regarding the intelligence angle. So there were a slew of reporters who took advantage of Maria and there was one in particular that ended up going to Ghislaine Maxwell and, you know, becoming yeah. friends. Can you tell the story behind that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, Vicki Ward is a journalist that at the time was writing for Vanity Fair. You may have heard of her because she wrote this article that I believe was published in 2003 called The Talented Mr. Epstein. That is, you know, one of the few uh, long form articles before Epstein's first arrest that talks about him in detail. And um, she, um, uh, there's a lot of evidence, too, that she and her editor, a guy named Graydon Carter at Vanity Fair, uh, were threatened and, and basically told not to move forward with the publication. Um, but it was published, but it turns out um, that Vicki Ward had interviewed Maria Farmer and promised to keep their story, her story and her, you know, her sister's story safe and, and help protect them. And then at some point after this article comes out, um, meets Ghislaine Maxwell. Um, there's pictures of Vicki Ward and Ghislaine Maxwell at like parties together, by the way, uh, at least two of them, including one hosted at Vicki Ward's own home, um, or at least that was hosted by Vicki Ward. And, um, at some point, uh, over drinks, Vicki Ward tells Ghislaine Maxwell that the person that reported Maxwell to the FBI had been Maria Farmer, essentially telling um, a woman that Maria Farmer called one of the most dangerous women in the world that she has ever met, that, you know, it had been her that had reported um, Maxwell and Epstein to the FBI in relation with these crimes against children, basically, um, which is just the most disturbing violation of journalistic integrity I think I may have ever heard because Vicki Ward knew all of this information that we know now that Maria talks about Ghislaine Maxwell and everything she was involved with. Uh, Maria had told all of this to Vicki Ward. And then for Vicki Ward to say, oh, well, this person's high society and I want to be, I'm part of high society. So, you know, I have more in common with Maxwell. Let me buddy up with her, even though I know all these horrible things she's done. And then, and then, uh, one of her victims basically tattles on one of her victims. I mean, it is just disgusting, um, for lack of a better word. Um, the fact that Vicki Ward hasn't been exposed for this, um, I think that really needs to change um, because this, you know, Vicki Ward, especially last year, was given a lot of very positive press about her bravery for reporting on the Epstein scandal. But how can you be considered a brave reporter on the Epstein scandal if you then turn and then get in bed with, with those very people? Um, it's just it's just sickening, frankly. Um, but yeah, th th this was probably one of the more egregious examples of a reporter abusing Maria's trust um, that she had to tell. She has other ones too that, that will be in the um, second part of the phone call when I um, release that, but yeah. Um, what happened with Vicki Ward is just very disturbing um, and, and very disturbing. So everybody is still wondering why the hell Maxwell hasn't been arrested. Ari Ben Menashe, he's convinced that she's in Israel. Do you concur with that? Well, I think um, that's possible, but that's not what Maria Farmer uh, believes because she argues that um, because of what Ghislaine Maxwell told her all the time about um, the Rothschild family being her family's greatest protectors that she believes that they are hiding her at one of their mansions, specifically in the United Kingdom. Um, and that is something that has not gotten a lot of press. You would think, um, you know, periodically UK media will be like, where is Ghislaine Maxwell? And they'll have a story saying it's Brazil. No, it's France. No, it's here. No, it's there. Right. Um, basically playing this, you know, international woman of mystery game um, with everyone and um, the fact that this family hasn't been named in connection with protecting them, I think, is very uh, protecting her, I think, is very interesting because, um, like I said, Maria said on several occasions that Ghislaine talked about how her family was protected by this particular family. Um, and they have she seemed to think that it was in the United Kingdom 
um, at one of the mansions there. Um, Ari Ben Menashe in your interview said that if she was in Israel, she wouldn't have much freedom of movement and would be relatively restricted in what she could do if she did uh, decide to go into hiding there. So it's very possible that she did not decide to go into hiding there because of those restrictions and instead chose um, an option sort of like that suggested by Maria. Frankly, I have no idea. Um, it really could be anything. Um, I think both are plausible. Um, and it really comes down to what decision Ghislaine Maxwell made at the time uh, that she decided to do this. But I think, you know, both options deserve uh, to be explored. Um, it's definitely worth pointing out that if you um, mainstream media um, generally avoids mentioning this particular family. So it's very possible that may have been, um, you know, her choice um, in that case, just because of uh, of that. And um, because, like I said, they're, you know, they're very powerful and um, her family, not just her, right, her father, um, considered them to be their, their great protectors, as she put it. I wish I knew which mansion. I took a camera crew to Ghislaine's house in London and to Peter Express Walking, so we would be straight over there. Now, my interview with Ari Ben Menashe was kind of a preliminary. I'm hoping to do a longer one with him. He is very guarded in his answers, as you may have noticed. Based based on your research, what would you suggest I ask him next time around? Ooh, um, I don't know. That's a tough one because I've also done my own interview of him <laughs> that I ended up publishing in, in, in um, a, a separate um, article back with my Epstein series. So um, I think, Sean, that's a question I'm going to have to think uh, a little <laughs> bit about um, because I, I had asked him, you know, do you remember what year it was uh, when you saw Epstein with Maxwell and all of the stuff and a lot of the specifics? I mean, it is a very long time ago. He, um, you know, could not recall them. I didn't want to push him too much. Um, but one thing, um, I was actually rereading a book uh, by Gordon Thomas about the history of the Mossad, and Ari Ben Menashe is in the very beginning of that book, talking about the um, Mossad presence uh, that was uh, around, you know, uh, in that hotel um, in Paris and relationship to that driver regarding uh, the death of Princess Diana. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I hadn't... Um, Asked at, to, to clarify, Ari Ben Menashe wasn't there. He's quoted in the book talking about things that went on there, right? So um, I think that may be somewhat interesting. Um, apparently, Ghislaine Maxwell had told um, Maria Farmer in going over these photo albums of the royal family and all of that, that she and the other, uh, that Prince and she and Prince Andrew and Fergie and all of this absolutely hated Diana and all of the stuff. Um, and so there may be some, some interesting things um, interesting things there to come up. Um, who knows? But um, I, you know, I'm out of curiosity, not really Epstein related, but it may be interesting to see what sort of things he can talk about in relation to that case, perhaps. And just to clarify your last statement, so that Ghislaine was joking, um, Maria overheard Ghislaine joking that they were being so cruel to Diana, they were making her cry. Was it something along those lines? Yeah, yeah, that's what she said. That they were, she was reminiscing. Apparently there was a picture of, of Ghislaine Maxwell and, and, and Fergie, and I think Andrew as well, laughing while Diana was also can be seen crying in the same picture, and that, that was, she was making the joke about, about that, yeah. That's in the call for people that want to listen to Maria talk about that specifically. Okay, I'm going to add some of the call to this video. So if you are watching this, um, stay tuned. There'll be some at the end. And is there anything you'd like to say to the people watching this in conclusion, anything that I may have overlooked that I've not asked you today? Um, well, there is a ton of information in this call. Um, we went over most of it, but there's a lot more. For example, um, Maria talked about seeing Ghislaine Maxwell with Ivana Trump, Trump's ex-wife, um, and that the two of them would go out and, and apparently recruit young preteen girls together. Um, that's in this call as well, right? So it's definitely worth, um, it's worth your time to listen to the whole thing and just to take it um, from Maria a lot of her information can be corroborated independently. She's putting me in touch with people that can corroborate uh, you know, other um, aspects of her story, particularly things that she witnessed and saw at the Wexner estate, um, among other things. So I would just encourage people to look you know, at this material. There's a reason I released it to the public. It's because this information needs to be disseminated as widely as possible. Um, not just uh, you know, to get this information out there, but to also help Maria out. 
um, considering other things that have been going on. Um, it's very important that interest in this case does not die down, that people stay um, aware of what's going on and they stay mad at the fact that these people, the people responsible are apparently, as things stand now, evading justice. Um, I think if we let interest in this case go away and people forget about it, then that is what will happen. Uh, and we just cannot fail. Um, I just do not want to fail people like Maria Farmer who have had to live through this experience and have tried and tried and tried to get someone to listen and no one has listened. You know, um, I just really hope that people can take our conversation and um, listen and understand what these women had to live through and realize that until these people face justice, this will continue and it has to stop. So all of Whitney's links are in the description box below this video, Twitter and everything else and links to her articles. Stay tuned if you want to hear some of the call. And uh, Thank you very much for coming back on Whitney. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I hope that um, your, your viewers will be able to get a lot about uh, a lot out out of this call, but there's a lot more that I hope um, will come out in the future. Some other interviews that I have planned um, that are not just for the book, but, you know, related to things that came up with Maria. So I hope that um, people will, you know, keep paying attention to this case. And I appreciate you consistently reporting on it to keep this in the public consciousness. We cannot forget about what is happening here. We have to stop this. Thanks, Sean. You're welcome. On the Epstein playlist now, I've got almost 300 videos. If you want to check those out, they're in the description box as well. So thank you for watching so far and enjoy listening to Maria Farmer.